0: Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 94, more home assistant tips, tricks, and ideas. We yeah. talked about this recently, I know, but uh, this apparently triggered Jay into a state of deep research and um, yeah, focus, I would say. Hyper-focus. Hyper-focus. Hyper Jay uh, took this to the next level, so we're going to share some more tips on this, and uh, maybe we'll coax Jay into... Doing some videos on the topic as well that'll get even more detail, but I think it's worth bringing up because Home Assistant, um and we got some news announcement around it, we'll talk about too, is is really like it just fits in the pocket of not just home lab, but I would say even a lot of businesses. I'm I'm talking to more people to go, you know, I just don't want to tie things to the cloud. I want to be able to manage and see a lot of data locally, and the amount of integrations you get from this self hosted app are pretty amazing. So I think it's just such a good fit for the audience here, and it is certainly an endless rabbit hole of fun <laughs> of automating oh, everything yeah. uh at, at a level of detail um that's that's pretty incredible so it, it's kind of our topic today but we have a few other things we're going to bring up as well uh, As as we change the show format up a little bit and uh, bringing this to you we're going to have a little bit different cadence where we try to bring you some of the updates because there's so many things happening we want to make sure everyone's aware of some of the new fun features that come out with popular software used in all the home lab uh, and things to get you started But before we start all of that, we have to thank a sponsor of the show, and that is our friends at Akamai. Yes, Akamai formerly known as the, the <laughs> like what is it? The artist formerly known as Prince or the place formerly known as Linode, but there's still Linode DNA in there. Uh, yep. They still have been really great to work with. So the Akamai Cloud, great place to host your services, great place to host things that maybe you don't want in your lab, but maybe sit better on that cloud. They give you a lot of services and those services have actually expanded since their acquisition. So there's even more reasons to use them. Their app store is cool. Um, there's a project me and jay will be discussing soon that we uh uh will can't have we won't have it all public yet but it's all more good stuff and have more knowledge we're going to be dropping uh courtesy of akamai we've been working with them on some fun yep. projects we do recommend them uh we think they've been a great sponsor of the show there's an offer code down below uh to get you signed up with them if, you, if you're interested and we thank them for being a sponsor pretty much since the beginning they're mm-hmm. still happy engaging with them absolutely all right um First on our agenda of the home lab show is feedback. And this is an interesting question. And I know there can be challenges with doing this. I don't know. I, I've not tested this as an edge case. It should work whether or not you run running any performance problems is the question and This comes from the user starts with had a question. Is there any conflict running ButterFS file systems in an LXD container storage pools instance on top of ZFS pools on a storage backend such as TrueNAS? I know I can't nest ZFS file systems due to version conflicts. Uh, They seem to run fine and make snapshots more efficient, but can't find much edge cases. Yeah, there's this is an interesting discussion because when you're doing this, um, you may run into like an optimization problem and it was, Interesting because I it was within the last few episodes of the two and a half admins podcast. If you're not familiar with them, check out that podcast. It's great. But they had a couple good discussions around ZFS and what happens when you run ZFS inside of ZFS. What works and what doesn't. But there's a lot of weird edge cases of performance that can come out of it, not functionality. Like it seems to work and be stable, but it's kind of like this weird alignment problem. And you are in kind of uncharted territory because they were talking about ZFS running inside of a virtual machine that is also backed by something running ZFS, but the same rules apply. I don't see a problem with it from a reliability standpoint. I don't know how much it would enhance your performance, but RFS has its own caching mechanism. ZFS has its own caching mechanism where the inefficiencies lie or more efficiencies is going to be up in the air. So what do you think on that, Jay? Kind of the same?
1: (laughs) Yeah. For the most part, I feel like it should work, but, you know, you run into these weird edge cases. And I think that's the nature of the question where, um, you know, if you have one file system that does things a certain way, they're both copy and write file systems. So I mean, that they're in the same category, but how they organize things, if you know, features that work in one may not work in the other, especially if ButterFS or some features that aren't considered ready. So I am normally a fan of just, you know, setting up a lab and trying it out. Like if you're curious, just try it. But I think, the nature of the question is, you know, are there going to be quirks that you might run into later? And that, that becomes really hard to test in a lab because it, there could be an intermittent issue. So, the, I mean, for the most part, I would say the LexD container shouldn't, or Lex-C, whatever, whichever it is, um, shouldn't really notice that it's on CFS because it's almost like a VM doesn't always, and most of the time yeah. doesn't know what kind of storage it's on. But um, the problem might be with how the two um, interact with each other. I mean, one way to find out is just to run something, not production or something that you depend on, but just run it for a while and just kind of see what happens, run some updates on it and things like that. And just see if anything kind of stands out as weird. I, I don't um, know if there's any issue, but I, I kind of tend to want to test that kind of thing. And
0: I would say, because you can automate your testing and do something a lot more intense and gain metrics from it uh, that are very detailed, is Pharonix test suite. And mm. I thought I was doing a video on it because, I mean, it's well known. But sometimes it's weird when people go, hey, what are you using? And I'm like, maybe it's not as well-known as I thought. Because to me, Feronix is like the go-to website. And their test suite um, is just amazing. And the automation level you can get in it is a little it's a little hard to set up because um, their documentation is not 100. It, it's very technical and not um, step one, step two, like the base running for is easy. The automation where you can actually, it has a web interface and not everyone knows that you can turn on the web interface and build a schedule of all these different things you want to do and concurrently with other VMs, for example. So you can actually have it like a coordination server where you can say, run for on these eight virtual machines that I've set up and at this time and run them all sequentially or. Simultaneously you got different options like that For scheduling and this can really put A heavy workload on there give You the metrics back because like let's say We see what happens with one VM two VMs, three VMs and then you can go look At the aggregate statistics it gathers and it Produces those uh, really nice charts That are all documented with your notes in them Because you for each run you give it a note Like this configuration is this Scenario um, and it just does All the nice aggregation work for you so you don't have to Like note this in a spreadsheet I've used it a lot Of my channel but this is a good way to load test it because you can set up the type of scenarios. And by the way, when when you run a Pheronics test for a scenario, like building a kernel, it loads and builds the kernel. It doesn't just run a simulated benchmark. It just automates some task like querying a SQL database or Mm -hmm. uh, running Apache. It actually runs some of those in the background to give you extremely accurate uh, workload. So it's kind of a fun way to test this. I don't think there's any reliability or risk you have running this, but it would be it's an interesting um you know, what is that edge case where they perform better or what's the edge case they perform worse? We, you are in our uncharted territory, my friend, and this is what the home labs is yep. about.
1: <laughs> yeah, what wonder yeah, you like what happens when you have a ButterFS snapshot and a ZFS snapshot and you restore one and not the other? You know, things like that are going to be potentially interesting.
0: Yeah, it's definitely, um, it, it. I don't I don't have the time to set one up myself, so we'll, we'll wait to hear. We don't mind some feedback on it. So let us know how it goes, or if you find something unusual, uh, send mm-hmm. an email over to us. Uh, speaking of that, feedback at the Home Lab Show. This is where these uh, questions can easily be sent to us. We still have the form on the site, uh, but people seem to prefer to email us. So that uh, that is definitely the way to do it. There's, mm-hmm. Just email us, and uh, we'll take the time to answer the questions. We actually don't have any other questions, so we'll just jump over to the next. Yep. Um which is some updates to some software I wanted to bring up. Now, I haven't done a video on it yet, but there is a new version of your NAS scale out, which is awesome. They have been working away. I have a bug I want to test before I do my video. I want to see if they solved it. There's a, a weird encryption performance bug I ran into. So there's a potential for maybe that being fixed. I was vague of whether or not that issue was fixed. Um, the new UI is available for VMware migration in zen orchestra i did do a video on this and it's pretty cool and for those of you that are going you know i want to get off uh vmware but you know can you make this easier on me i don't want to do i mean we've talked about me and j have cloning and things like that and that's where they're really putting a lot of effort into this because it's, it's just an easy migration path you're on your older version of vmware you connect your zen orchestra to your vmware machine and it then migrates all your vms to the new machine and life is good so but now, um, any
1: clone villa in between
0: yeah matter of fact especially if you've got like 20 vms i mean i gotta admit if you have 20 30 vms and Following the process, me and Jay talked about with Clonezilla is 20, 30 times more tedious. <laughs> this, is, uh, this will actually migrate all of the VMs right over, and it's just it, it's too cool not to talk about. Uh, and with, I've been told, and I don't know, I don't really keep up with VM or licensing. Someone said they increased what they're charging for even the lower tiers for it, I, but if you're looking to come over to the XCPNG and G world, Hey, why not come on over? Uh, they're making it easy and welcoming to do so. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and this is also part of the free version. So this is not, uh, if you're wondering when it comes as an Orchestra, the question comes up and I did the demo with the free version to let people know in the home lab. Yes, you can compile this yourself. Yes. It's fully available and accessible to you without any licensing. Um, then we have HomeSeer. This is another piece of interesting news. Is that, um, the HomeSeer is now part of the HomeSeer is now a member of the Works with Home Assistant Partner Program. And I thought this was kind of neat because this just opens up even more devices uh, that are accessible. So they announced an official partnership. Now there's a lot of things you could always get working in Home Assistant, but it's even cooler when and many companies are are getting more and more cooperative with Home Assistant because they realize it's popularity in the marketplace, which is awesome. And- You know, it's just kind of a neat thing being able to uh, tie more and more things in there. I'm actually shocked because someone complained about them being expensive and you're not wrong. Like, I have some Hughes lights in here. And if you said they're overpriced, I agree with you. But when you find them on clearance at your local hardware store, you go to then all the local hardware stores and you buy all the lights. All my Hughes lights, I put around my house. I would not have paid, but I got. 80% Eighty percent off on them. So if you can find a deal on Hughes lights, turns out um, they'll work great with home assistant. They actually are. I, I got to admit they're they're nicer than some of the other uh, ones I've tried, like Innovelli's. Uh, the Innovelli's work, but I, I find them a little bit more quirky. Uh, even though they're listed as working with them, the updates don't go as smooth. Like when you do transitions to different colors, compared yeah. to the way Hughes Hughes makes a good product, but boy do they charge for it. <laughs>
1: yeah but i know yeah the clearance thing is great like i i may have rated a number of kmarts and they were um on the final uh stages of going down and uh <laughs> you know grabbing some things and i think i, I got 80 percent off of some things so i mean it, nothing yeah. beats the clearance deal i mean that's the cheapest anything they can get at that point they just want it out the door they don't even want to profit so yes
0: i agree and jay has some tips though of something we 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 won't declare it 100% solved, but it's something that is a recommended best use case for the when you set up Proxmox and the way it does horosync. Oh, yeah. So if you can explain yep. that troubleshooting tip that you had for us.
1: Yeah, so this is something that I've been running into, and I'm going to give a disclaimer. I'm not 100% confident that this is the solution to my problem, but it might be. Sometimes when you run into something intermittent, the only thing that'll give you confidence is just a lot of time passing in between, um, you know, if it doesn't happen for a number of months or something. But the issue I'd run into is every now and then um, one of my Proxmox nodes would just drop off the network. And it's been fine for years. And then all of a sudden it just, it's just gone. Like it's running, but the network card is just offline. And sometimes it's just, you know, frozen. So I I never really knew why I I started Googling around and then someone mentioned that this kind of thing can happen if you don't have the CoroSync network on its own network. So what I mean is, you know, it's on its own NIC. And in my case, I I set it up on a VLAN, a different subnet, and I made it so that, you know, nothing else can see it. But basically the idea being that CoroSync is like the cluster network. It, It communicates between the nodes and that needs to work so well that you need to have like a, I think it's like a 0.5 millisecond or something like that, or a very low uh, response time is what's needed to uh, keep CoroSync happy. But then what happens when you have like a bunch of network traffic, like, you know, you're backing up a bunch of VMs and you just have bits flying through your cards. And then at that point, it's theoretically possible. It could be getting in the way of the cluster network. And if it can't communicate, then uh, some things start to go down. So it all, it all makes sense. So I implemented this. So, um, again, it was just a separate NIC. I have a 10-gig card, but I felt like 10-gig is overkill for Coral yeah. So I had a 1-gig a NIC that was just not used by anything, because I think there was like four built into the motherboard or something. Um, so I just dedicated a port to um, this network on each of these servers and then set up a VLAN. <clears throat> and um, the thing is, you're not going to notice, at least I don't think, any performance improvements by doing this. It's a best practice. By default, everything's on one network. But, you know, honestly, when you get to a certain point, you should probably start separating things. And I think that's what I started to hit because my traffic on the VMs was just getting to a point because it does match when my size got it to a certain point. So I'm thinking there's a strong possibility this is it. But even if this is not the cause of my issue, because um, I even had someone suggest to, to take a look at the SFP um adapters because that can sometimes cause this but i ruled that out that wasn't the issue so um and i'm going down this road but even again even if it doesn't fix it it's a best practice so you're not going to be harmed by having this in place other than you know the amount of time it takes you to set it up but you're only setting up you know a very small network for very specific nodes so um basically it should be a little easier than most i think
0: Yeah, and it's just to reiterate, like, the the going down problem comes probably from Jay oversaturating during his backups uh, on there. Uh, It's just weird that it doesn't, how the recovery works on it. Because don't you you have to reboot the uh, ProxBox to get it working?
1: Yeah, um, either the whole thing will be frozen or that that uh, 10 gig card will be, be just off the bus. It's like, what? And I think that... Might possibly mean that it could be something else, but I've, I've replaced the 10 gig card because of this, because I thought, well, maybe it's bad. And then it didn't happen for a couple of months until it happened again. So it's like one of those, you know, causation correlate, you know, correlation kinds of things here. But when I looked at um, some forum posts, someone else posted having the same problem and then someone like their first reply to that message was you probably have CoroSync on the same network as your your main network and that kind of thing can happen. So there is definitely reason to believe that this can be caused by that on account of the fact that people in the Proxmox forums will point this out, that there could be erratic behavior if if you're sharing these. I would think for most people, you may not run into this, but then again, you could have just the right amount of plex traffic for example you know maybe maybe if you just have a weird situation where everyone in your house is in their room and they're all watching plex at the same time i don't know i mean there could be weird stuff like this that could happen so if you run into this it's it's a best practice if you have the capability of doing this if you have an extra nick i wouldn't Go out and buy one, you know, an extra network card, unless but you know usually you're, it, but usually yeah. you have an extra one. Usually so you have maybe, an extra one.
0: You're like, those one gigs, I'm not doing anything yeah. with them anyways, so.
1: <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, well, I mean, with the exception being the IoT network, I use that too on a one gig NIC because I figure that doesn't need 10 gig just yeah. to turn on my you know, light. Hopefully so. your IoT doesn't need 10 gig. That'd be crazy. <laughs> well, you know what? With Home Assistant being such a rabbit hole, I think... Someone in our audience has probably gotten to a point where they need to, I, I, I mean, it's doubtful, but it's possible. You yeah. never know. You never so, know. never know. Speaking of home assistant, Jay, what'd you do to home yeah. assistant? <laughs> uh, you mean besides being obsessed with it and kind of like uh, being unable to pry myself away from it and spending too many hours at night to the point where I'm losing sleep? Yeah, that's a rabbit hole. So um, when, I, when I get obsessed with something, all of a sudden, I, I just go, it's like, go big or go home. I'm already home. So why not go big? <laughs> So um, here's the thing. So I've mentioned a few times that I'm getting more and more caught up. That's a long process, but it continues. And I was able to finish like, I think, 10 renders in a week at one point. So my editing queue is dropping. But what do I do with that extra time? Well, I've been neglecting home assistance. So I decided to really dive in. And I found a couple of things that I feel like people may not know. Um, for some of you, this might be common knowledge and you know that it is what it is, but for some of you, you might not know that this, um, some of this capability exists. So when I, what I decided to do was redo all of my dashboards, I I felt like they're too busy, they're too cluttered. There's too much going on there. And one important thing about, um, you know, home automation, especially if you don't live by yourself, if you have other people, if you have a roommate, a family or something, uh, and let's just say you want them to use it, but maybe they're not technical like you are and they kind of don't care, but they do to be supportive. You know who I'm talking about? Like your family member wants to <laughs> wants to be on the same team as you to show support, but they really don't understand this stuff. But it gets frustrating for them if they're not technical because they're not going to understand, like, why are all these buttons needed? I just want to turn on the lights, right? That's all they want to do. Why do I have to go through all this to turn on lights? So, um I feel like they call it spouse approval, but it's not just, you know, spouse approval. It's whoever you live with that may not want to be bothered with this kind of thing, but might still benefit from home automation. The idea is to keep it simple, you know, as few buttons as possible. That was my challenge to, um, you know, really get it down to what's required and also hide the things that aren't necessary. For example, if your TV isn't on all the time, then why have a now playing card on your dashboard all the time. If your TV is not on, doesn't make sense. I mean, but what, what's horrible about that is you either have the card on the screen or you don't. So you just want to benefit from that or you don't, but it's it's either there or it's not. But I found out that's not true. Um, actually, you could put what's, um, you could add what's called a conditional card. And this is the first tip where you could literally have an if then statement. And that's how it's it's shown there. And you can set up if this, you know, if this device is on, show this card. So that way you could have a um, a media player app, no media player card, right? So you have a media player card on your dashboard and you can set its presence to depend on the media device itself being on. So if you turn it off, the card goes away. You turn on your TV, the card comes up. So I went kind of crazy with that. And I was like, okay, um... Rather than having a button for every single light, I'll have one button that controls all the lights. And then when it comes to the TV, you have um, you know the card for playing whatever you're playing is there if it, uh, the conditional check is true. So that helps. But then I've also discovered that you can create a navigation in a normal button. So you can leave the entity blank and then you could you could have the click action, instead of being a toggle, it could be a navigate to another page. And I didn't know you could do this, but it, it's just one of the features that's built in. And nothing I've mentioned so far requires an add-on, a plugin, or anything. We're just talking Home Assistant. You add a conditional card, if-then statement, add something if it's needed or have it be hidden if it's not. But when you have other menus, you could actually hide the menus from the interface by calling them a sub menu in the settings. And this is the second tip I didn't know you could do. So if you set a dashboard as a sub menu, then it's hidden and inaccessible from the dashboard. There's nowhere you can click to get to it. But that's great because you can create the button that takes the person to it. So what I did was I set on the TV, for example, a long press or long tap, you just hold your finger on it, hold your mouse cursor on it, and it'll do a different action. So a click will turn it on, holding down the mouse button or long touch will take you to a sub menu that has all the controls for the TV, rather than having all the controls for the TV be on your dashboard all, you know, all the time. So what you're doing is you're making it less overwhelming for someone else. I'm sure you as the person that's designing your home assistant, um, you know what every button does. And you probably don't even understand why other people think it's complicated, right? It's like, well, what do you mean it's complicated? It's easy. Look, there's a button for each of the 45 things I have in the room. What's difficult about that? But other people look at that and they're like, oh, my God, that's a lot of buttons, right? So um, having um, roommate approval, I don't know what the correct term (laughs) is, but (laughs) um, I should say average person approval is definitely a win for your... um, home automation, because then you get buy-in from the people that live with you. And then it starts to really get to be something amazing. Because if you think about it from their eyes, like I just want to turn on the lights. So for example, in my home assistant, I'll have one button for all the lights. But the problem is sometimes you want to configure the lights, you know, independently. You don't always want every light on. Sometimes you might want your lamp on, but your overhead light off. So then I set up a menu where if you long tap on the light icon, then you get another menu that gives you individual control of every light in that room. But only when you long press, if you just tap on it, it turns everything on tap on, it, it turns everything off. And then the submenus are behind a um, long press sub menu. And then I created my own navigation menu by just having a series of buttons, hiding the icons, just putting text there, you know, here's all the rooms office, uh den, you know, whatever. And someone sees that on Home Assistant, they see a menu, easy. Oh, I want to turn on a light in the den. It says den, I'll tap on den. There's a big light icon there. And that's the only icon there. I'll tap on that, lights come on, they're happy. If they care about the lights, they could choose an individual one behind a menu. But these are features I kind of discovered on accident, just kind of playing around with this. And it might not sound like much, but when you think about this, you could really customize your dashboards to be dynamic rather than everything always being visible. And I think that will give you a lot more control over um, what you have. And speaking of control, here's another tip. If you didn't already know, there's um, cards available. Again, nothing I'm saying relies on an add-on so far, and that's still true. There's vertical stacks and horizontal stacks. And this really helps because you could have icons or any other cards that are joined together vertically vertically. Or horizontally depending on what you want to do and then you get then you can start embedding conditional checks within vertical stacks so think of it this way you have a vertical stack where the top card is the power button for a tv for example i'll keep using that example and then the card underneath is a conditional check to show the now playing when the tv is actually on but they're in a vertical stack so you don't have to worry about the you know power button for the tv uh, being moved all the way to the right. And then the now playing card appearing all the way on the right. Now we have what looks like an actual relationship between the TV button and the now playing button, which is going to be obvious for everyone. Like, Oh, I turned on the TV and now there's a now playing card directly underneath the TV button. So that now playing card probably goes to that TV. It, it just makes sense. And I kind of went crazy with this idea and these uh, features. I'm not sure how well known they are. maybe, Everybody listening are like, yeah, we've all known about that forever. But if you haven't known about any of these things, um, you know, I think that this might be something that could help you simplify your dashboards quite a bit.
0: One thing I'll note too, and I think on our last on that show we only mentioned it, uh, the PF Sense integration is actually pretty slick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have it tied to your firewall rules. You can have it enable/disable rules. So if you have something you only want on sometimes, uh, you could use Home Assistant to say, you know, what? I want to open this up or not open this up, turn this firewall rule on, have the status of your firewall, know if there's any uh, issues like loss and things like that one thing that i really how i use home assistant and the way you can really think of it is becoming the one place the the thing we talk about in the enterprise world the single pane of glass that gives us all our data and home assistant really can be that for you Um, i'm almost done with a video i'll be doing about how i've integrated home assistant with my synology surveillance station Uh, because my wife you know, uses uh, the surveillance station through the um, app all the time. She doesn't actually go to the DS Cam app anymore. She can see what she wants to see. Can give her notices. She can set things on there. It is a, uh, it's really cool. And me and I, I and I see someone in the comments here saying this. Yeah, me and Jay both want to make some videos on how we've integrated it to show you, like, in a very visual way how we've created uh, some of these features. It's just kind of cool. Yeah. The more I've pulled in there, uh, I recently became among the people to finally get an IoT device. I have a roaming vacuum in my house and it turns out I'm excited not about the roaming vacuum that seems to make the wife happy but I like the fact that I can integrate it into home assistant and it will tell me what it's doing it'll tell me when the bin's full yep. that's just kind of a novel thing I haven't done that yet um, I want to make sure it works first because it was tricky to set up because you know security <laughs> but
1: yeah I absolutely.
0: A network because that's where IOT devices go so yes uh, roaming robot vacuums are IOT devices in case anyone's wondering
1: <laughs> so in regard to doing videos about this, because this is the topic I'll bring up just so people understand the issue with choosing topics on YouTube. And I, I think, you know, unless you are really into the YouTube space, you're not going to understand this. Um, whether I want to make a, a video or not, I mean, that should be my only deciding factor, right? If I want to do a video, I want to do a video, I'll do the video. But unfortunately with YouTube, sometimes it forces us to to be in a silo, even if we don't want to be. Yeah. So w- I'll give you a perfect example of this, and I'm going to be completely transparent here. So when I reviewed the HP Dev 1, I mean, we're talking like, a, I don't know, one or two, maybe even three weeks of testing. I had that uh, very early before it was even announced. So I had a lot of time with it. And I, I put it through its paces. And uh, the video, I'm pretty sure, got like 30,000 views, I think. Um so basically, you're, you know, that sounds like a, a successful video, but I made $20 in ad revenue uh, so far total since that video came out from then until now. $20. Like that's not even a Taco Bell dinner for the entire family. Right. So um, but then again, I could create another video that's a tutorial that gets like um a fourth of the views that gets a, a lot of money in ad revenue. It's like, what's going on? So what happens is what um YouTube decides is your topic area may not completely align because in my mind an hp dev one video is perfectly on topic because it's a linux laptop but to youtube it's like oh he's reviewing hardware now right uh, he normally does tutorials well uh, we're not going to show this or give him any money for this uh, that's outside of his um, it, well it also reduces
0: yeah. the views and everything else yep, uh, that too
1: and YouTube I actually sends that. us a
0: notice when we talk, go outside of our topic. It's a weird problem. Shame that, on
1: you for doing something like that. <laughs> and it's on topic. It's just, they don't know the Linux link. So I guess, um, what does that have to do with home assistance? So um, the honest truth is I want to do videos about it. I probably will, but I can't promise it because it's possible that if I do create a video about this, nobody will see it because the algorithm won't send it to anyone. Because if YouTube thinks that, Home automation is too far outside my topic. It's just going to decide, well, his audience doesn't care about that. So we're not going to show it to anyone. So it's like it should be my choice, but it's YouTube's choice. Right. And I think that's horrible because I want to do this video. Anyway, long story made short, I will try to do a video. I can't promise it, but maybe it'll be fun to do an experiment and see if the algorithm accepts my um, home assistant topic or something. It's just a ridiculous thing that we have to deal with. Yeah. So maybe, so
0: it's a, maybe I'll do hope, a video on it. Hope. Algorithm be damned. People want to see it. <laughs>
1: I know it's just, you know, this is the problem with automation and AI. You know, they, I don't know if it's AI, I have no idea how this works, but sometimes when you have data modeling, um, it might look a certain way to a computer, but as humans, we'll see a link between two things and we'll know the link and it'll be obvious to us. It's like, Oh, Jay, the Linux guy is reviewing a Linux laptop. That makes sense. I think that's what most people will think. YouTube on, on is, thinks of it as another way. So, you know, just one of those uh, inside struggles that we kind of talk about in our yep. weekly calls and, and kind of complain about because it's annoying. But, um, but basically, if you don't see home assistant videos from me, um, trust me, I want to do it. I'll probably do it, but we'll see where it lands and we'll go from there. Yep. But yeah, it'd be fun to do. Cause I think, um, that's kind of the challenge of a podcast, right? It's, it's one thing to tell people these features exist, but I do feel like a certain subset of the audience is going to probably not care because if they're a visual learner, they're just not going to get the picture until they see it and then it clicks. So, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of hard to paint that picture without actually showing you the picture. And I think that would make a lot more sense if people were able to see it. So maybe one of these days I'll throw together a, an overview video where I'll just show it. And then if that does well, then maybe we'll go from there and then there might be more home assistant uh, coverage on the channel.
0: Yeah. So if we do do it, make sure you watch it because that helps the YouTube algorithm know that that you should watch it, that we should make more.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just spam that F5 button. Don't do that. Don't do that. They, they, they,
0: they probably they, know. They
1: know about that. They, they're, not, they're not that stupid, but if only, right? Um, but yeah, sometimes, I mean, someone in the um, chat was saying, What if you say HA on Linux or Home Assistant on Linux or something like that? Um, I think that's some truth to that. Yes. Because here's, here's the thing if I uh, do a review on a piece of hardware, it um, results in you know, less ad revenue and also fewer views. But if I, you know, let's just say, for example, I'm reviewing a Raspberry Pi product and I phrase it as a review, it'll do, do it won't do as well. But if I make the same video, but spin it as a tutorial, you know, a project, then it's going to go crazy, but it's the same content, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I'm giving an opinion about something and showing you how to use it. I mean, it's not all that different from one of the others. So, um, you know, that uh, individual who mentioned that, yeah, you're onto something here. Um, that's a very good point. And, and yes, that does actually work sometimes. And we do that sometimes. Like, yeah, if I put this out as a review, it won't do well, but I'll just do a tutorial instead and then watch it just go crazy. It's just weird.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. but, yep. But uh, yeah. what's the next tip for Home Assistant or did you cover them all?
1: Those are the main ones off the top of my head because okay. I do have more, but the problem then becomes... I'm overloading you with talking about something that I think is best done Visual. by seeing it. But with these tips, I think if you take this far enough and just use your imagination, the, these now, things sound simple, but you could really go crazy with this and do some pretty fun things.
0: But I want to mention you, there's something you did that I was hoping you bring up. That's why I didn't know. If oh, you what had it what is it? that?
1: Maybe uh, I forgot.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, you have the tool to control your fans now. I think it was the one I sent you.
1: Oh, right. The um, mention the the device. IR
0: blaster. IR blaster. This is a cool thing. Um, and I, me, and Jay were in discussion because he's like, "Yeah, I wish I could control these fans." I'm like, "Actually," and (laughs) happens uh, all the time. Explain the IR blaster a little bit. I think it's kind of neat.
1: So, if you're like me, and I would, um, you know, and maybe you'll see this in the background if you're watching the video version. I have a box of remotes. You know, it's, it's often in the background. It's like a little wooden box. and you'll see like four or five, maybe 10 remotes sticking up because that's how many remotes I have in here. I mean, LED lights and the TVs and all these other things. And it gets complicated because the, the ceiling fans, which I also put in home assistant, um, one of them, when you power it on with a smart plug, the fan doesn't come on. It just has power. You have to grab your remote and then turn it on. And that's annoying because when I hit, I want you know, to press button plug. I want it <laughs> just come on. I don't want to have to press a button on the remote. So that's when we got to the conversation you're like, "Yeah, you can actually just buy an IR blaster and program it with the remote codes and it could do all that for you." And sure enough, um it works. So basically the IR blaster is something that you add to your network, your Wi-Fi network, and then Home Assistant is, is able to pick it up. And then what you do is you train the IR blaster with as many remote codes as you want, um, any device you you want. There's a video I followed on YouTube that was um, made this annoying process stupid simple uh, to the point where I, I just blindly did what the person did and shown on the screen. And, and sure enough, it absolutely worked. So I went through every remote, I programmed every button and this is the downside. You have to do this one button at a time. So if you have two TVs in the same room, You have to set the power button for one program that set the power button for the other program that and then the up arrow, then the down arrow, then the left arrow, then the right arrow. And it gets really tedious because you're creating a a script behind every button. But the fan only has a few buttons, like maybe four uh, turn on, turn off, circulate on, circulate off, speed up, speed down. So then I create an automation that waits five seconds after I hit the smart plug, presses the power button. It waits four seconds or so, and then it turns on circulate and then it cranks up the speed. And that's, I was able to do that with the IR blaster. And then I was able to program the television and my monitor, you know, my actual computer monitor has a remote. So now I can turn on the computer monitor with home assistant and access the menu and do everything without grabbing the remote. So um, I did some initial testing and it works really, really well. So that was a great tip. And it actually enabled me to get rid of uh, some of the things I had on my dashboard that I didn't need.
0: Yeah, it's just a nice little simplicity there for, uh, yep. I, I thought it was cool when I, I, it was a discussion me and Jay had of why do you have a box of remotes that led to him ordering a device and getting it all working. So um, yep. there's really so much you can automate with it. That's what we wanted to share with you uh, on this. I think it's so, it's such a directly related to our, um, the uh topic of home lab in general and automating all the things and you being in charge of the automation, yep. you hosting your own cloud at home. Uh, that's really what this just, it's such a nice alignment there, but nonetheless, leave some comments, head some feedback for us on this topic because uh, mm-hmm. we like hearing from you on it. We have a few more things planned. We're working on, uh, uh, that are going to be back to some of the more technical things. So we just didn't have each of those topics quite ready yet, uh, but do check out Jay's recent videos on, uh, the, the series open open, open stack, stack. open shift yep. open yeah. stack. and okay. open
1: shift is part of it too yeah open shift is part of it too yeah yeah, open too, stack. yeah.
0: So. yeah absolutely um, yep. well we do have one question we can answer real quick do you recommend using the latest kernel uh, in proxmox j
1: um, the the question i think is is better asked is there a feature that you want to utilize that's the reason to use a a newer kernel if you're asking about Performance improvements I mean there's always going to be performance improvements. I'm not sure if there's going to be anything you'll you'll notice, but when it comes to servers, I'm not a fan of uh, swap you know swapping out kernels unless there's a compatibility issue or maybe a bug that a newer kernel version fixes. Another thing with the newer kernel version is that if you have a newer uh, motherboard, you might not even have a choice because hardware support is tied to it. So if you um, install something and then find out like you have no NIC, you do because you're looking right at your network card. You know it exists. (laughs) It's not a figment of your imagination, but when you go on your server, it's just not an interface that's there. And that's often because that a uh, network card might just be newer than the kernel was. In that case, you have no choice; you have to use a newer kernel. And I, I don't, I don't know if that's why they provide the newer kernel, but I wouldn't doubt it because Debian is notorious for having really old kernels with um, hardware compatibility that leaves a lot to be desired. So even Debian users will use Debian backports to get a newer kernel, much in the same way in Proxmox you can do the same. So I would say if you have a reason or something that's not quite working go ahead and try it. But if everything is working, I would just leave it well enough alone. Yeah, That's what I would say ain't, about
0: that. It broke, don't fix it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> another, another question that was asked is where did I put the IR blaster? It's in a temporary location right now, but what I plan on doing is uh, installing it right in the ceiling, just having it kind of po- poking out of the ceiling so it's kind of looking down and then it can get to everything. Um, so being line of sight, means that you're not going to install one IR blaster and be able to use it in every room of your house. You will have to have one in the den if you want one there, um, you know, in in your office or wherever. They're not super expensive, but also money doesn't grow on trees. So you want to make good use of the ones you have. But if you have a lot of devices in one room, then it's a good candidate for um, automating that. But you will need multiple ones if you especially if you have different floors, different rooms. So it has to be line of sight. But in the ceiling, I have I have a drop ceiling. So I could just uh you know, just carve a little hole in the ceiling tile, just poke it down. It's easy. And that way um it's right there, easy to access. If I need to unplug it or reset it, which I still haven't yet had to do, but that way it could see everything without um maybe my monitor bouncing the signal off and not getting to the TV, which would be annoying. So or the fan in my case.
0: Yep. Absolutely. So,
1: yeah. All right. Well, thank
0: you for joining us. Hit us up at feedback at the homelab.show and uh, we're looking forward to seeing you next week. Absolutely. Take care. Oh, home assistant high availability. There's a fun topic.
1: I, uh, I, I was hoping we wouldn't m- miss that one because the acronym be <laughs> ha-ha. home ha-ha. assistant high availability. We need to make that an actual term. If it's not already, maybe it already is. Yeah. Um, mode. I heard of it, but that's pretty funny.
0: Yeah, we're definitely ha ha mode for for home assistant. I like that. All right. Thanks, everyone.